Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. There are nearly 20,000 murders annually in the United States. Perhaps it's the weather, but the Pacific Northwest has become the notorious home of serial killers and bizarre crimes. We're here to discuss those murders, to try to understand the motives, respect and remember the victims, and explore the humanity of it all. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. And And this this is Murder Murder in in the the Rain. The 1990s seemed to be a playground for serial killers across the United States, and the Pacific Northwest was none the different. Washington State has been called home by around 50% of American serial killers. We've previously discussed the Green River Killer in Episode 5, a man named Gary Ridgway who called the Evergreen State home and made it his mission to eliminate sex workers and runaways from the streets. Today we bring you another tale of a killer who targeted sex workers, Both serial killers were active at the same time, focused on the same population, yet they carried out their deeds with entirely different methods. The case we will discuss today had police scrambling for years, media claiming the police didn't care, and two killers evading arrest for decades. Two killers blending into the background of one city. February 22, 1990, the first three murdered sex workers in the Spokane area were found in quick succession. Yolanda Sapp was 26, and her gunshot-riddled body was found along the Spokane River. Just a little over a month later, Nikki Lowe, aged 34, was found draped over a guardrail under the Green Street Bridge near the Spokane River. She, too, had a gunshot wound. In May 1990, Kathy Brisbough, aged 38, was found near Spokane River South, gunshot wounds to her body. Thus began more than a decade of fear for the sex workers of Washington State. Sapp, Lowe, and Brisbough had a lot in common. All worked East Sprague Avenue, and all were addicted to heroin. All three women were shot and dumped near the Spokane River. While Spokane is often described as a great place to raise a family, the population is over 200,000, so it's easy to imagine there's a dark side of the city. The crime rate in Spokane is over 185% higher than the national average. Spokane is listed as being safer than only 6% of cities in the United States. Your chances of being a victim of a crime are 1 in 13. Brought to you by the Spokane (laughs) Travel Board. Shortly after the discovery of these three murdered women, a task force was put together to focus on the investigation. They worked for more than a year and not one arrest was made. After a few years of no additional bodies, Spokane police likely decided that the three bodies were an isolated incident. And though they were clearly related and the murders committed by a serial killer, there were hopes that the killer had simply moved on as no other similar murders had been committed thereafter. That was until more bodies did indeed start piling up. Over the next eight years, over 20 bodies were found, and many of them could easily be linked to the same killer based on how they were found, who they were, how the murders were carried out, and what the killer did with their bodies. 
Most of these bodies were discovered with a very obvious signature, gunshot wounds to the head with a plastic grocery shopping bag tied over it. Due to the lack of blood found at crime scenes, authorities believe that the bodies were never found where they had been killed. They were murdered, bagged, and then transported before being dumped. The body of Jennifer Joseph was found in 1997. Jennifer was a 16-year-old Korean-American girl who found herself as one of the more popular sex workers of the Spokane area. It was speculated among others on the street that her popularity with Johns was due to her young age and exotic looks, making her unpopular among the sex workers as she could make up to $1,000 a night. Oh, that's so gross. I mean, not her, but that just... she was a child. Yeah, mm-hmm. that part. And what's crazy is her family background doesn't seem... Doesn't fit what you would think. Yeah, would like her that. dad was in the military. He knew where she was. She was living with a boyfriend in Spokane who was much older. And to me, that's just a little odd. Like there's got to be more to the story that just isn't published. Very, very sad. And you said the bags that was only on their heads, right? Uh, they weren't around, like... around Over their head and tied around underneath their chin. The discovery of Jennifer's body brought many clues to light, yet it still took years for police to connect the dots. Police had found carpet fibers on Jennifer's shoes, light brown male head hairs near the decomposing body, and DNA left on the scene. And last of all, a tip submitted to police from a local sex worker who claimed she last saw Jennifer get into the passenger side of a white Corvette. You said that the police were starting to realize that these were all connected besides the bags and all of that were they running ballistic tests do you know at that point to kind of yeah they were that they were matching they were able to determine the caliber of the gun we'll get into that in a minute but they were able to connect based on the bag the method of putting the bag after the gunshot to collect the blood to and the kind of the posing it sounds like of the bodies well they weren't really posed they were dumped in different ways but there were times where there may have been a little bit of posing with like a foot or an arm sticking out well, like over the guardrail, like halfway like that. Yeah. The investigation hit the last clue pretty hard. A list of 4,000 Corvettes from Eastern Washington were compiled to another hundred from Western Idaho. This long list was then compared against traffic violations and solicitation crimes where a similar car was involved. Police began to locate and eliminate as many cars as they could. In December of 1997, Two bodies were found, one on top of another. A jogger running through an abandoned lot saw a partially buried body peeking out under leaves. When detectives came on scene, they found Lori Wason, 31, and Sean McCallahan, 39. Both were in a severe state of decomposition, fully clothed, with no socks or shoes, and both wearing the killer's signature plastic bags over their heads. 1998 brought eight more victims, Too many to describe in a single podcast episode. But to summarize, they ran the gamut on age, but all were local sex workers, many of them drug users, and they all died from gunshot wounds. Most had the signature bag on their head and their bodies disposed of outside of Spokane, either partially buried or covered in brush, plants, and dirt. A variety of people discovered the bodies, from farmers to parents walking alongside their children. Most of these bodies were in advanced decomposition, indicating that they had been dead a long time and likely moved from one location to another. Some bodies were found with plant debris not local to the area they were found, and those were just as much a clue as the DNA found on their bodies. 
One of the victims had a unique mark behind her ear, indicating that the gun was held directly against her skin. This meant that investigators could determine the exact weapon used in these murders. Forensic technician Ed Robinson was able to replicate the mark in a lab and determined it came from a 22 caliber Raven pistol. That's like a really tiny handgun. In August of 1998, a woman named Christine Smith came face to face with the Spokane serial killer and lived to tell the tale. Shortly after midnight on the 1st of August, a new client approached her for a date. Her rate was $40 for oral sex, and he happily picked her up for the evening. As she climbed into his dark-colored van, she jokingly asked, Are you a psycho killer? To which he replied, I'm a helicopter pilot and the father of five children. You have nothing to fear. As she tried to earn her $40, it was clear that it was doing nothing for him. He struggled to get an erection. She continued the attempt, and then she felt the sharp pain on the back of her head. She had clearly been attacked by him, likely due to his fury that he couldn't get an erection. Suddenly, blood was running down her head and face, and she was fighting to stay awake. But she recalls the man demanding for his money back, which she had smartly gathered upon entering his car. And she was now very fearful for her life. So somehow she managed to climb into the front seat and escape through the passenger door. She ran a few blocks away to St. Luke's Rehab Center, where she was able to get help from a security guard. She had escaped the attack with only a small cut to her head. She received three stitches in the half-inch long cut. Were they able to determine the source of that? Like, was she stabbed? Or I will tell you about oh, that Oh, gosh. I'm sorry to jump ahead. I just want all the answers. It's so good, girl. By January of 2000, police eventually narrowed down the list of Corvette owners to 44 potential candidates. One by one, they followed up on the cards. Towards the bottom of the list, of course, they locate a car, a white Corvette with red carpet fibers. Once the car is located, they realize it's super new to the owner, Rita Jones, and she definitely was not this killer. She noted to investigators that the previous owner had changed the carpet prior to her purchasing it. She then consented to have it searched, and they located several fibers, which were then analyzed, and the results pointed to at least two carpet changes. The car wasn't seized immediately, but eventually purchased from the owner, and she luckily got her money back because she called it her dream car. She had been saving up for it. Oh, and, poor lady. You know, poor thing. Buying a murder I think car. she got exactly what she paid for it, so that's pretty cool. Upon dismantling the spotless car, they quickly discover a small mother-of-pearl button in the passenger floorboard underneath the seat. This button matched perfectly to a jacket owned by Jennifer Joseph. Additionally, they find a spot on the passenger seatbelt that looked like blood. When they tested it, it was an incredibly close match to uh, Jennifer Joseph's mother and father. They actually didn't have DNA from Jennifer Joseph because she was so far along in the decomposition process. Um, But it also could have been lost or maybe they ran too many. I didn't really get details on that. But it was clear that it would have been a sibling or her. Definitely a relation. Right. So that was a really high likelihood it was hers. That was enough for them to go after this owner. And now they had a name. Robert Lee Yates. Robert Lee Yates Jr., or Bobby as he was called, was born on May 27, 1952 and was raised in Oak Harbor, Washington. His father, Robert Yates Sr., 
was present when his own mother violently killed his father with an axe. She apparently lost it after raising 11 children and just cracked, chopped him up with an axe and put him in the garbage. In front of the kids. I don't know if he like saw it, but he was present there. Like he saw the tail end of it. And she then spent seven years in a mental hospital. So there's something in that family line. Okay. Bobby was described as a typical guy, not one to get into trouble. He was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist household, and he had a very strong, healthy relationship with his own father. The one dark corner of an otherwise healthy and happy childhood was the sexual abuse he suffered from an older neighborhood boy. Though he shared everything with his father, that was one thing he refused to talk about with him. Bobby was described by former classmates as... I love this, by the way. He's described as neither outgoing or shy, kind of quiet, kind of an average guy. So basically, I summarize the saying, he just was somebody you didn't notice, kind of blended into the background, wasn't a bad guy. Right. Didn't stick out as good or bad, just was there. After graduating high school in 1970, Yates went to a community college where he met his first wife. This was a very short-lived marriage. At 20 years old, he married Shirley Nylander. They moved to College Place, Washington, where they both enrolled in Walla Walla College, a Seventh-day Adventist school. After 18 months, the honeymoon ended, and Shirley asked for a divorce. Pretty quickly, Bobby met someone else called Linda Brewer, another college student there at Walla Walla, and they quickly married in 1974, only to find out it was illegal because he was married to someone else. I don't think he got the memo that you have to get divorced divorced, before moving on. But soon he was able to get the divorce. He officially married Linda. And in 1975, he got a job as a prison guard at Washington State Penitentiary. Linda left him for a period of about 30 days. Um, Basically, she discovered that he had drilled a hole in the attic wall in their apartment so he could watch the next door neighbor couple having sex. That freaked her out. So she left. But she eventually came back because of their first two children, two little girls, um, they didn't like being poor. So you can't see it, but I'm rolling my eyes. I really wish there was more information on how she discovered that. Like she just like trolling around she the would, attic. I like to think she was like spring cleaning and moving stuff up to the attic and was like, what's this? And sees into their bedroom or something. And was it like they shared an attic and looking down right, like at the bed? Duplex? Or was it, were the people like living in their attic? I don't really know. I couldn't, I couldn't find that out. But I think it was... Uh, she wondered and went looking for it. I mean, that's usually the case, right? I mean, gotta trust that intuition. Yates eventually joined the army and trained to be a pilot. He did quite well. He earned multiple medals and eventually became a helicopter pilot. Hey, we've heard about a helicopter pilot we before, sure have, haven't we? He was part of Operation Desert Storm. He flew in the UN peacekeeping mission to Somalia. So he's a dedicated war hero. His marriage, though, was very mundane. It lacked love. It lacked passion. It lacked sex. Linda often blamed tiredness for the reason that they didn't have sex, but it's indicated that it was likely he couldn't get an erection most of the time. However, since he traveled so much because he was in the military, it was really no consequence to her. She didn't care. It didn't affect her day to day. She was still raising their kids. And they did have five children now, so they were clearly having some sex. It's a lot of kids. (laughs) 
In the late 90s, Linda began to assume he was having affairs. She had caught him on multiple occasions cutting credit cards uh, that she didn't know about. She noticed that there was a lot of visits to the ATM and taking a ton of money out. So she just assumed he was withdrawing cash and spending it on all Paying his girlfriends. Paying for a mistress. Yeah. Right. But she still stayed in the marriage. On April 18th, 2000, Yates was apprehended on his way to work. He was immediately arrested for murder, fingerprinted, and DNA swabbed. This was the murder of Jennifer Joseph. Okay. Police quickly went to his home to discover he had a wife, five children, and was a decorated war hero. So he by no means looked or seemed like someone who would murder over a dozen people in less than a decade. They searched the house hoping for weapons and found nothing. So they go outside where they see this very detailed garden and they assume maybe he's hidden the weapons in the garden. So they start looking with them as a forensic botanist, Richard old. He comes along because of all the bodies having the plant life, plant life, right? So he's coming to look for an indication that those plants exist in this yard. So he knows he notices that the bark is this red bark and it's very fresh. So he brushes it aside and he sees this dark black old bark underneath and that happens to match bark that was found on one of the bodies which is great but totally circumstantial it is but pair that with the car that has the blood and the button it starts to paint the story so as they continue to search the property they find a black van belonging to yates and within this van is a single bullet fragment an interesting turn of events around the time that they discover this black van Christine Smith, the survivor we spoke about a little while ago, she goes to a hospital because she gets in a car accident and they have to do an x-ray to look for injuries. Well, the doctors find something very interesting. There, lodged in the back of her skull, is shrapnel left from a gunshot. When she had been attacked in 1998, she assumed she'd been cut from just being hit over the head. But it turns out she was shot. Shot in the back of the head. While given a blowy. And survived. In a black van. So the bullet is pulled out of her skull by doctors and she... Also, can we talk to those first doctors and be like, um... Cool cut. Could you be more yeah, thorough, idiots. maybe? <laughs> it's Spokane. It's treatment of sex workers. It's exactly it. Yes, indeed. The bullet fragment lodged in her head was taken out by doctors and she reached out to police... They gave them the bullet and they went to go and compare it to the fragment they found in the van. And lo and behold, there's a match. DNA taken from Robert Lee Yates when arrested matches DNA discovered on seven victims. And his fingerprints matched one located on a plastic bag tied around Sean McClanahan's head. They had their man and now it was time to prosecute this bitch. After his capture, many sex workers reflected that he was a regular and even recalled that he paid cash several times a month for a room at the Spokane Budget Saver Hotel, which was about 30 bucks a pop. So it was pretty obvious that since he was a regular, he had trust among the girls. It wasn't just the ones that went missing that saw him. Girls that were still there alive on the streets had him as a client multiple times. So it was only the very unlucky that ended up dead. With such damning evidence, Yates really had no choice but to comply to try to save his own ass from the death penalty. He ended up drawing a map for police, a map that actually led to his own home, 
And there in the yard outside the bedroom window in a little garden was the makeshift grave of Melody Murphy, another sex worker Yates had admitted to killing. And this is his own backyard, home to his wife and five children. In his bedroom, just outside that window, where he could reflect every night. He also confessed to the 1975 murders of Patrick Oliver and Susan Savage, two 20-something friends who grew up together in Walla Walla, Washington. They reunited in the summer of 75 to spend the day together and visit one of their favorite places, a recreational area 10 miles east of Walla Walla, where they had spent many fun weekends together growing up. Their bodies were found days after being reported missing. Patrick was fully clothed, shot three times with one bullet through the heart, and Susan, naked from the waist down and her shirt pulled up, had a bullet wound in her shoulder and another behind her ear. And police are assuming he did this for target practice. I don't know if it was his first murder. It's highly likely it was, but they think he was hiding, hoping this couple was going to have sex and then shot them because they were just friends. They were not a couple. They never were. Mm -hmm. Um, That maybe he was pissed that they weren't doing it because that's what he liked to watch. And then he just used them as target practice. Just see if he could get away with it and not be so hands-on if you will yeah and it i mean it worked he did scramble a little bit after that and ended up moving out of town and nobody put it together why he left his job and left the area but uh, i think he was running scared on that one so anytime you have friends that quit their job and move out of town note it to police they've probably killed someone that's what we're learning today i think so Prosecutors didn't go after Yates for all of his confessed murders, but on October 19, 2000, Yates pled guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted first-degree murder. This was part of a plea bargain settled on to save him from death row. In exchange for his help locating that final victim and public apologies he had to make in court, his life would be spared. He was sentenced to 408 years in prison and ordered to pay $620,000 in restitution. However, in 2002, he went back to court where he was convicted of two additional murders. There was no deal in this one, and he ended up receiving the death penalty. Oh, I like that. He did all that. Oh, no, there's a but. But in 2018, Washington banned the death penalty, calling it unconstitutional. Here's what I like about that, because I don't, I'm not pro-death penalty, but what I like is that they were able to kind of trick him. Like you wanted to do in previous cases. Yes. Uh Yeah. So they tricked him into giving all this information, and then they're like, by the way, two more, and we don't need any more information. Right. So two women he had killed were from Tacoma, so I think that's part of Kitsap County. And so he was prosecuted by other people who had no reason to hold up this plea bargain. Yeah, so I just like that he Yeah, got but stupid Washington and their constitutional ways. Well, you know. <laughs> so anyway, his, because they banned the death penalty, they ended up just converting that into two additional life sentences. But we can rest assured he's never getting out. And the just the icing on the cake for me is that he now finds himself living in the very familiar Washington State Penitentiary, where once upon a time he actually worked as a prison guard. Oh, baby. I know. That's good, right? That's really sweet. The Washington State Attorney General stated that she was not convinced they had all of the victims. Like many serial killer cases in the Pacific Northwest, we will never truly know how many victims in total they have. Because the victims, even though they were prostitutes, they were still mothers and daughters and aunts and 
nieces and, you know, grandkids of people. That was the voice of Christine Smith, the only known surviving victim of Robert Lee Yates. She says it well. These may have been sex workers, but they were loved and they were human. Once he was captured, there was a memorial in the city of Spokane to recognize his victims. Many of the families received closure from his conviction and from the memorial. However, there were still victims not confirmed to be associated with the Spokane killer. Their cases were still open, and it's possible another serial killer was hiding in plain sight in Spokane, Washington. Bum, bum, bum. Notably absent from the list of victims associated with Yates were the three women that kicked off today's case, Yolanda Sapp, Nikki Lowe, and Kathy Brisbow. During the Yates investigation, he was required to take a polygraph test to try to obtain clues that he was the one responsible for these murders. But to investigators' dismay, he said no, and he passed. Other factors also supported his denial. For one, all three of these murders were committed with a 45 caliber handgun and not the 22 that every other victim had died from. Additionally, and here's the good one, his alibi was that he was stationed in Germany, which is true. So he couldn't have done it. So with Yates cleared of these crimes and no other suspect out in the, out in the world, really, we hear nothing. It goes cold. That is until 2012. Donna Perry was arrested on firearms charges in March 2012. As she was arrested and booked, a shocking discovery was made. Donna's DNA and fingerprints were linked to three open murder cases from 1990. No. The victims, Yolanda, Nikki, and Kathy, were all found with Donna's male DNA. (gasps) Oh, we got a twist. You heard me right. Donna is transgender. Back when Donna was Douglas, he got into quite a bit of trouble with the law. In 1988, Douglas was arrested by federal agents for possession of a pipe bomb. A search of his home uncovered 22 handguns, 27 rifles, and 20,000 rounds of ammunition. That reminds me of a previous episode where we spoke about the ratio of yep. gun owners and amount of handedly raising that average. Hoy. A year later, in 1989, Douglas was arrested for soliciting sex workers. Then he goes kind of quiet for a few years, but in 1994, yet again, he's arrested for unlawful possession of guns and ammunition. He then finds himself in prison till 97. Once out from behind bars, he yet again gets himself caught for purchasing sex. This time, the woman alerted police because she went to his house and freaked out because she saw knives, guns, and crossbows. So they go and they look into it. Nothing happens. He doesn't go to jail, whatever. But in 1999, Douglas is ready to reinvent himself. So what does he do? But he goes to Thailand and begins his transformation to become Donna. Fast forward back to 2012, Donna's busted again on guns and is now in major trouble because there's three murders associated with her. Mm -hmm. So the case is being investigated and they go into her house and they find this like hidden panel in the closet and uncover this little box and inside of it are a bunch of panties and they're all small, too small for big butt Donna is what I'm going to call her. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my. I'm just kidding. Donna's got a booty. <laughs> but they, they're clearly not hers. They, I'm guessing, are a little older and just tucked away for a rainy day. So then uh, she had previously done a prison sentence in, I think, Texas. So they find a cellmate there. And the cellmate is just raging, ready to go to lay out everything she knows. So she didn't ask for anything in return, wasn't asking to like have a reduced sentence. She just hates Donna. Yeah, but she had been in contact with her own mother telling stories of this Donna person. And the mom's like, write that shit down. You need to share this with the world. So she has a journal where she's writing Donna's stories in and police come to her and she is just ready to go. So here's what she says. Donna claimed to have killed more than just those three women. There were at least nine that she was bragging about while in prison. And even more shocking than that, she admitted that she got the sex change because no one would ever suspect an elderly woman of killing prostitutes. Then she goes on to tell her that when she got back from Thailand after going through the sex change, I think she was there a little bit longer, like did her full recovery, transitioned, came back. She killed two people as a woman. Her cellmate also says that Donna committed these murders that, I mean, she was motivated because she felt that prostitutes were pawn scum and that it was not fair that they could reproduce and had kids while she couldn't. So in court, Donna does admit to it, but in this roundabout way, she basically says she became Donna because she had to stop Doug from killing people. Yeah, I was actually going to say that of like, That's one thing to make that a really extreme alibi of like, no one will suspect, but like, that's so extreme that I wonder if part of that too is like, well, maybe if I lower my testosterone, it will kill this drive. I think it's, or whatever it is that's, I don't believe that because of the saying that she committed additional murders and just being bragging. I don't see why the cellmate would lie about that. I mean, it's possible. Right. but But I mean, as far as, for Donna, I wonder if that was something that, yeah. like, I don't want to be doing this, even though I'm going to brag about it, but maybe deep down I don't want to do it, and maybe this will alleviate that Yeah, and drive. I think over time we're going to see more people kind of using this case as a, a case study, really, mm-hmm. to see, well, was it strictly for an insanity plea, or was it really trying to cope with stopping that behavior, lowering that testosterone, becoming a woman... Who knows? I'm interested in looking into that a little more. Which is awful because then you have... Such a bad thing for transgender people. Yeah. Like you have all the stigma already and then you have someone that's like trying to frivolously doing it for totally the wrong reasons. That's why we have a process in the U.S. where you go through incredible therapy before you do that. I mean, you got it's got to be the right decision for you. Right. And then you have these bad apples that go, see, look at there. The- well, Thailand does it for cheap and you can stay in really nice resorts. I watch a lot of shows on this. <laughs> anyway, back to Donna. She was eventually convicted after a four week trial and sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murders of Yolanda Sapp, Nikki Lowe and Kathy Brisbane. The families are very happy and thankful to see justice after 20 years. But of course, It doesn't ease the pain, but at least they can shut the door and try to move on with their lives. Did prosecutors try to do anything as far as talk to us about these other two that your cellmate says that you were talking about? Let us find the bodies and we'll... I have a feeling they're still looking into it because with... I mean, we thought we have Green Green River Killer. Right. He's in the Seattle-Tacoma area. Right. We've got on the east side of Washington this guy 
he's killing people. Robert we, Lee, right? Yeah. And in between are just so many unsolved murders right. of prostitutes. Well, I mean, and if you think about it, it's how many bodies have we found that we can't place to people? And how many people have we captured that we can't, we don't have the bodies to place on yet? And like, it's so many. And this rage towards sex workers it's, is and it's fascinating, kind of makes it sound too lighthearted, but you know, that it's this hatred and it's like, because my dad, you know, you hear frequently, you know, my dad was abusive and he left and my... Broke up my parents, you know? Yeah, Mm. my mom had a bunch of boyfriends, so she was a slut in my eyes and so I'm going to kill all the... Like, it's so... I I feel like it's such an Americana thing of like... Yeah. um, Sex workers are, you know, the lowest on the totem pole and so we can treat them to live out whatever fantasy we want, even if it's being murdered. Like I feel like the stigma has changed a little bit. I mean, I think it's a, getting to be more accepted. It People almost like the really pretty ones, they're on this pedestal and there's people making millions of dollars in sex work, but yet mm. the these women are treated like a totally different race of people almost, you know? Yeah, it's you'll go home sad. and you'll watch your porn and be like, well, no, that's totally different. But they're and made then up people. these people on the streets, like. Right, same thing. And it's crazy because there are more. There, We could cover, we could do an entire season on killers who focus on prostitutes. Oh, yeah. It's insane. And they're, during this time that they're investigating this case in, I think, the Midwest, I can't recall the city right now, but they had another serial killer targeting prostitutes. I mean, yeah. it was just, they thought, oh, did he travel? Is this the same person? Uh, so it's very confusing. And there's so many unsolved cases. And I don't know what kind of attention it's getting if they are still looking into right. it. It's almost too much. It's overwhelming. Right. I personally think prostitu- prostitution should be legal because it'd be safer. People are that are going to do it are going to do it. Or if like, it's regulated and people are tested and and you know who's where and you can trace these women and men that do it and you can have like um resources for them and yeah you can have testing and you can have oh we haven't heard from so and so in a long time like let's check on them um and you have like i mean tax it and let's pay for our schools you know it's like people are going to do it well, and it's there. I can't imagine that it's like this huge percentage of people that are like, someday, someday I'm going to pay for sex, but not till it's legal. Like, I don't yeah. think that holds no. that many people back. I think there would be quite a few people that would then participate, be like, oh, that, oh, that's intriguing. But like my neighbors, which we'll get into later. Oh, oh my. <laughs> I, you know, there's that curiosity factor, but I, you know, the people that are doing it now and then have those safety nets for those women. And, can we please start acknowledging like sex workers as people? And if they come in with an injury to their head, maybe Let's be thorough yeah. and see if there's a freaking bullet so in their I skull. I follow someone on Twitter who's a sex worker and she's just like a huge advocate for treating people like people. Right. But during the case, something that I, so shock of all shockers, I read three books for this case. Nerd. And one of them focuses on this woman this woman who runs this business to help with needle exchange and um, drug testing and all this stuff, like get these women off the streets or at least come in for showers and get condoms, all that. And she worked really hard to try to like build a trust between sex workers and police because that was the only way they were going to get good quality witness info. Yeah. Because the prostitutes were just like, they treat us like crap they yeah. don't care they may drive by they don't stop and talk to me right they don't ask if i'm missing my friend you know there's another book that i did not like written by 
What's that guy? Mark, Mark Furman. Mark Furman. But he did have a good point. He said, like, right away, the flaws of the police not talking to these women right. was causing a big, big problem. So he started a radio show and mm. was basically opening up a line of communication. And they had a sex worker on the show to talk about what she was seeing oh, well, and cool. kind of advocating to foster this relationship which did work the police then did put more effort well and it goes it. both ways if i know that i'm doing an illegal activity i'm not gonna yeah, go talk to the people they don't that know are gonna... if they know they're not gonna get busted maybe they yeah. will yeah and that's exactly what happened they got a lot more insight from the people who actually were seeing these girls on a day-to-day basis um one thing though we need to talk about because it did not it came up zero times in these books but it came up during the court case necrophilia one of my Favorite topics, as we know. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with it. If you I came thought about to- that with um, the couple that he killed, with her being undressed. Like, yeah. he would have had to kill the dude first, I would assume, to be able to yeah. get down there. And then it's like, well, did he? They never really said if there was semen found. I, I don't know. But so here's the thing. Semen was found everywhere all the time. But <laughs> it's really hard to... I just want to continue this conversation because no, I, know, but I that's had just- a point for five minutes. No, I know, but that's just... A really horrific, horrific visual of this. <laughs> I mean, it was on blankets. It was on in bodies, whatever. But the point of the matter is we don't know when that came into play, if it was before or after. So I think it was easily dismissed because necrophilia right. is gross. No one wants to make that part of a case if they don't have and to. And if you're already dealing with prostitutes, you're barely processing only because people found their body. Right. You're just checking the boxes, running the report, whatever. And that was Mark Furman's argument too that they would go on scenes and find evidence that wasn't picked up after the fact so it's very it's very likely the case they just glossed right over it but if you think about everything broken down it adds up right if he has this body outside of his window he's probably thinking about that the bodies were often dug up and moved what was he doing in between Mm -hmm. we don't know so well and i find it so interesting too that he you know that you said he didn't really have much as far as childhood trauma besides this one, you know, this sexual abuse, which is a trauma, but doesn't, the pieces don't fit. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like, very if different. you just told me that, like, what if I presented you a serial killer that had a background of sexual abuse from an older neighborhood boy? I'd be like, oh, maybe, maybe Dahmer. they, yeah, mm-hmm. like you went after other males or you went, like, that kind of thing. But this whole, like, I'm obsessed with watching my neighbors have sex, but I have erectile dysfunction and... You know, like only married twice and has like kids. Like, for all we know, that couple could have been his first like interest in necrophilia. Maybe he thought he was only into watching. Oh, I meant like the neighbor, like the attic neighbors. You know, what I'm saying, oh, but right, right, right. in relation to that, maybe he was wanting to watch, and since they weren't doing anything, he saw an opportunity after he killed her. That could have been yeah, that's his true. introduction to necrophilia right for all we know and i i don't know but the reason i bring it up is in court they were arguing that his paraphilia impacted his insanity basically like he couldn't wait what's a paraphilia paraphilia is like when you're sexually interested in things that aren't normal like cars or something so necrophilia falls under the umbrella of paraphilia so anyway he's arguing like i'm insane i can't control it i did these murders because i'm so obsessed with necrophilia so that's when it comes into play and we look back on all these cases and are like shit but then it's also like did they just pull that out of a hat to be like yep we gotta take any point is we will never know and what is his situation now is he still alive in prison he's still there he'll probably live out quite quite a bit longer before he just dies of natural causes how about how old is he? 
I can't do math that fast. Well, so in 1970, he was 18. Let's see. So 70, carry the four. I, I believe he's 67. Thank you. So not that much longer. I mean, yeah, but, and I love that it's where he used to work. Oh, it's just and I hope so that, I hope that beautiful. he was a garbage guard and that he gets a garbage guard. And I doubt it. He's probably living the sweet life in isolation with a TV or something, painting on Wednesdays. Anyway, Whoa. I have another point to bring up that angers me, uh, and it angers most people. Okay. So remember when we were talking about the Corvette list? Yes. So after Jennifer Joseph was found, the cops were like, we've got to look for this Corvette because of the, the tip that came in. Mm-hmm. So they were all put on alert. If you pull over a Corvette, you need to note it, and they have somebody internally who's combing through all of it to see if there's like an avenue to investigate. Right. So this patrolman pulls over. A white Corvette driven by our killer in the same year that Jennifer was found. But homeboy writes Camaro on the ticket. Oh. So no one caught him. They could have saved over eight people. This bonehead, I hope he does a better job now. He's well, probably a not a cop anymore. Ago. But I mean, can you imagine? Oh, that's so I would gross. be so ashamed. I would definitely quit my job. Like, what a failure. That's very similar to like zodiac killer yeah you know where they watch him leave and they walk by and talk to him and then Ugh. i think all killers there's that one moment uh-huh. they could have been caught and this was it i mean it's terrible he pulls it over Ugh. talks to him a bit writes down camaro i mean come on bummer big time bummer all right so if you are interested in learning more of the details around this case robert lee yates i highly recommend the book body count by burl bearer it was so packed full of details and all of it was just very credible he did interviews with everyone in the case and i just thought it was very very well done so if you want to learn more because there is so much more to learn check it out If you are suffering from sexual abuse, the hotline is 1-800-656-4673. If you or anyone you know needs support with domestic violence issues, the number is 1-800-621-4673. And if you are experiencing any kind of mental health crisis, please call 1-800-716-9769. The Sex Worker Project provides legal and social services to those who engage in sex work, whether by choice, circumstance, or coercion. Check out sexworkersproject.org for more information, opportunities to donate, and resources. And if you're looking for maybe a more unconventional way to help support sex workers, please visit Meals, the number four, and Heels, H-E-E-L-S, MealsForHeels.com. It is this really awesome program. It's owned by a woman of color who is LGBT, and she delivers meals late at night to all sorts of sex workers all over the Portland area. They even have a GoFundMe so they can get better food available and a van and everything else. So definitely go check out MealsForHeels.com. Makes me want candy. Oh, I have candy. Oh, what a great day. I want to say I love how your ear is like mashed up. It's really fun. It's like. <laughs> this is how cool. I would record our albums in my jazz choir. Oh, boy. Ba-ba-doo, ba-ba-doo, ba-ba-doo. Booba squeeze. Squeeze a booby. 
Yeah, that's what I mean. It I don't know where cal- that came from. It popped up on my calendar. It popped up on my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I said something really fast to her the other night because actually we should have recorded everything. It was probably very Oh my slow. God. She turned and looked at me and we were talking, I think we were talking about like the fact that we, oh, the that I knew the concert. Up. We we felt like it was a million years away. And she was like, oh, I totally forgot until it popped up on my calendar. <laughs> on their heads right they weren't like around over their head and tied around underneath their chin with just why can't i say that in exchange he was going to help find that left that other oh boy however what did i say nothing you guys were smiling at each other we were friends i'm just so excited i I can't you gotta take a breath (laughs) do you need a hot sauce packet Douglas was arrested by federal agents for possessions. I'm just so excited. I can't handle it. Okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) Douglas. Okay. Here we go. One more time. No more mess ups. Don't get scared now. Macaroni and cheese. Ooh, that sounds good. It's still first matters. Yes. Fuck are you guys talking about? Home alone. I mean, like, I think he got down there and then tried to get down there, but his get down there did not get up. Ooh, discovered discovered uncovered. uncovered. (gasps) Ooh. Say that in the bank. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. Check out what we're listening to this week. I'm Sarah. I'm Caitlin. And this is Luminal. Join us each Wednesday on your favorite podcast network for stories of true crime, mysteries, conspiracy theories, strange happenings, and best of all, beer. beer. Each episode has a unique theme like mysterious circumstances, cruise ship crimes, old-timey murders, and more. With jokes and humor sprinkled in. We We can't can't wait wait for you to listen. listen!